You're listening to the Mom Inspired Show, episode 210 with Elaine Casket. Welcome to the Mom Inspired Show. I'm your host, Amber Sandberg, and this show is created to inspire, encourage, and add a little extra fun to your day. Hey, you guys, I'm super excited to have Elaine on the show today. This is an episode you guys are going to want to share with all your friends, trust me, because it had me just sitting here thinking, wow, I did not even think about these things when it comes to posting things online, as well as doing things like Ancestry.com and 23andMe and how it gives away our data um, and how it can be used and manipulated and all this kind of stuff. And one thing that stood out to me when Elaine was talking is by the time our kids graduate and get into the real world, it will be so easy for their identity to be stolen because of facial recognition, because of how many images have been posted online of their whole entire life before they even go to college. And I was just thinking, wow, I don't even think that parents are thinking about this. And so this is why I wanted to have Elaine on the show just to have our eyes open so that you know about all of this stuff and that you're intentional with what you're posting. And so it's not to judge you guys because I post things as well. Um, but it definitely makes me think maybe I should not be posting as much um, information, um, dates, um, you know, schools, all this kind of stuff that people can kind of figure out. And, you know, it's a gold mine, all this data we're putting out there all of the time, especially if you're making it public. But even if you're not making it public, it's still out there and it stays out there. And here's the thing, it is so hard to pull off. And that's one thing that she talks about. So I hope you guys really, I don't know, learn so much after listening to this episode and make sure to share it with your friends. And I really hope you enjoy it. Okay, you guys, so you know, if you've heard me talk about my favorite things before, I love the program Lean, but I wanted to let you guys know that she is doing a discount for $30 off. I've never seen her do a discount this low before, and it's for people that are in education at any capacity. Um, So if this is you, I would highly encourage you to grab this because I want to encourage you guys to not wait until January 1st to get your health, you know, in order, or, you know, if you've been finding yourself, putting yourself last, and then we're going to go into the holiday season, I encourage you to put yourself first and take care of yourself. And so you have to sign up for the October 26th session, which I think is perfect. It gives you over two months before January 1st starts. Wouldn't you rather start on a strong foot versus being like, oh man, I just gained 10 pounds. Now I got to lose that 10 pounds just to get back to where I was, you know, in October. Um, so I understand like that's frustrating. So I want to inspire you uh, to start now. And here's the thing. If you never heard me talk about this program before, you can hear my episode that I did with Amanda. She's the one who created the program on episode 167. And to get the $30 off code, you have to use my referral code. And that is mom, M-O-M. And if you catch this episode after October 26, you can still use the code to always get $10 off. Um, so I have you covered if you've missed this time frame. Don't worry about that. Um, but anyway, you guys, I love this program because if you're just looking to get back on track or you're learning to track macros um, or you need accountability, or I have a lot of friends that are trying to come off keto. They're realizing they can't do this lifestyle with no carbs. And what I love about Lean, if you are trying to figure out how to add carbs back, she carb cycles. So that means some days are heavier carbs, some days are lower carbs, but she never takes away your carbs. So I think this is a perfect um, in-between for people who are kind of like, uh, I can't just be, I can't sustain my life just on keto. So this is great for um, people out there that are trying to kind of bring carbs back into your life. So also she is a dietitian and she provides so many recipes and also she provides workouts that you can do from home. So it's a seven week online program. So make sure to grab your teacher friends and you guys, homeschooling moms, I know you're out there, you're doing online learning. This is you as well. You guys are falling into the education capacity. Um, If you're a janitor, if you're a bus driver, if you help out at school, if you're a counselor, if you work in the office, this is you. So grab all your friends, do this together. Um, I think it would be a lot of fun. So all these links are in the show notes. And if you subscribe to the Mom Inspired Show, all you have to do is check your inbox. You will always see my favorite things and you'll see the link there. But if you are not subscribed and you want to just go to the website, you can go into the show notes and you can find the link in there um, and you can click it to get that uh, $30 off. But if you don't subscribe and you want to make sure you have 
every episode in your inbox every week, along with my favorite things with the links. Uh, make sure you go to mominspiredshow.com and enter your name and email. So that way it's all at your fingertips every week. All right, you guys, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Elaine, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm really excited to be on this show with you. I think we're going to talk about a lot of things. I think so too. And I think a lot of people's eyes are going to be open <laughs> after this. I think it's going to be fun. Yeah, I think it's going to be great. Um, so I do like to start off every show with an icebreaker on travel. I am a travel agent. And, um, you know, since we're not really traveling like we have been before COVID, um, where is a place that you would like to travel the most um, when we're all kind of back to traveling again and why? That's a really hard question. One is a more tourism kind of question, a place where I haven't been. And one is the place that I know probably better than anywhere because sure. I would love to go to Japan because I think I've never been somewhere that I think would be so fabulously, interestingly disruptive. It's just mm. the sort of place where there are so many different things about every aspect of life that you're constantly being thrown off. <laughs> and some people might really hate that, but I think that it's really interesting to be that disrupted because it makes you question some of your easy assumptions mm. about everything, you know, yeah. how society works or yeah. what people think, etc. But of course, in the period of time that we're living in, I don't know when I'm next going to see my family who live in Louisville, Kentucky, mm. and I live in London. And that's really hard yeah. because grandparents are separated from their granddaughter and mm. my parents are in their 80s and oh. I have nieces yeah. and a brother and sister all clustered in the Louisville, Kentucky area. And I am the one outlier. So yeah. I think that probably when travel restrictions are li lifted, I know where I'm going. You're heading there. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Japan um, you, can wait. Yeah, exactly. Um, how often do you normally try to get back to the States? Normally, I try to get back to the States to my shame in some ways because of carbon footprint, but I try to be really good in other things uh, twice a year. Oh, um, yeah, or at wow. the very least, my family or members of my family, my parents might come here once and I might go there once with my family. Uh, and that's kind of the routine my psyche has come to expect. And I definitely <laughs> notice the effects of oh, that you haven't done it. having been longer for sure. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 That's really good, though, if you make it back uh, once a year from that distance. So, um, I could see how that would be really hard kind of being so far away during this time. And also I think too, not knowing when you can go, you know, I think that's part of it. Uh, just the waiting and, you know, I think it's one thing when you can't go, but you know, a date that you can, it's another when you can't go and you're like, and I don't know when I'm going. So I think that's challenging. Yeah, that's the first time I've been in this situation. And I think as a psychologist, one of the things I'm aware of when people uh, you know, cannot anticipate or predict or know or plan. Sometimes that's a really hard space to stay in for an extended period of time. Cause I think when we're trying to make ourselves feel better, we do a lot of anticipating and planning mm -hmm. to feel better. And that's not something with respect to travel to see my family that I've got in my arsenal at the minute. So it yeah. takes a lot of just kind of suspending that need to know. I bet. I bet. Um, okay. So let's jump in. You kind of shared a little bit about yourself, but um, share with us your name. Um, so you live in London and then how many kids do you have and their ages? Okay. So my name is Elaine Casket and I do live in London, although I'm originally from Louisville, Kentucky. Um, I'm a psychologist. I'm a writer um, and I have one child, a daughter, and she's 10 years old. And I live with her and my husband and four chickens, even though I live well, in London. That's awesome. And a couple of guinea pigs, which Aww. were lockdown guinea pigs. Emergency the guinea pigs acquired <laughs> just before lockdown. So I thought my only child might need something that was a bit more cuddly than the chickens yeah. during a period of good time decision. when we couldn't see any other people. Yeah. So did that end up being a good decision for your daughter? A hundred percent. Oh, good. Guinea pigs a bit skittish at first, I've learned. <laughs> I thought that they might come around a bit faster, um, but I think we've gotten them where we want them now. Uh, so, and the chickens kept on laying, kept us in eggs all oh, through lockdown awesome. in London. So that's yeah, great. so we, we live a sort of weird little farm approximation existence in the heart of East London here. That's, um, that's yeah. cool. Um, so Elaine, how about you share with us a little bit more about yourself and um, just kind of explain um, how you got to where you are today before we jump more into the interview? Sure. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that we're going to be talking about today 
is how I think about and how I interact with not just social media, but a lot of online platforms and apps and things like that from a perspective of privacy. Um, and I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Wolverhampton here in the UK. And one of the big areas um, that I look into and think about is privacy and particularly online privacy. Um, and that's what my next book is primarily about. But my last book which is a weird book in some ways, but a really applicable book to our lives in a lot of ways. It was called All the Ghosts in the Machine. And it was actually trying to understand more about our relationship with big tech and with our online lives by using the lens of looking at what happens to our data after we're gone, after we die, like what footprint we leave behind and who owns it and who controls it. And when I was writing that book, which I thought was about death, but ended up being about privacy mostly and about our in-life decisions, uh, both about our information and about the information of other people, um, I ended up writing the last chapter or the next to last chapter um, before the afterward anyway, about my daughter and about my sharing of information about my daughter with my faraway family and friends on social media platforms like Facebook. And I totally didn't mean to end up there. I didn't know I was going to write that chapter. I hadn't planned it. I hadn't told my editor that it just where it ended up because that's where it made sense to end up because I started realizing the whole time I was researching stuff about our data online, all the really powerful decisions that I'd made about my daughter's online identity and her privacy and what some of the consequences of that might be in the future for her, but also with respect to our relationship, hers and mine. Um, and so the, 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 the book ended up there. Um, and since then I was so captured by that aspect of it, that it's kind of what I built my entire next plan book around, but thinking about, our online lives and the decisions we make about our information, but not just ours, about other people's in ways that we might not even mean to do. Because mm -hmm. I feel like this is an area that people, people kind of think like, oh, this is my information. If I want to share my information, I can share my information, right? Um, but the thing is, is that we actually take loads of decisions online that aren't just about our information, they're about other people's. So that's my big thing that I'm thinking about at the moment. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I don't know, did you mention how old your daughter is? Yeah, she's 10. 10. Okay. Uh, so I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old. Um, So when you were, you know, writing this book and then kind of really thinking back to everything, um, you know, the main, um, let me back up a little bit. So the main reason why I wanted you to come on is because um, I think that so many people post things to social media and all that kind of stuff and not really think anything about it and stuff like that. And then, um, and I wanted you to come on because I wanted you to share, um, what you think there, the consequences could be to that. Cause I think some people may have no idea. They're just completely thinking, you know, innocently, like, I just want to share. Um, I don't live near my family. That was one thing that we were talking about because you live in London, but you're from Kentucky. Um, and that we kind of are all scattered, you know, that we don't, we don't live where we grew up. And so people aren't seeing our children, especially. Um, and we want to be able to share all of that stuff. So I want yeah. you to share with us how that like, sure how that looked for you and what you, how you started when your daughter was born. But I think I know this is it started before she was born, you know, probably posting yeah. oh, pregnancy like stuff. A, a huge percentage <laughs> of parents, expectant parents yeah. share in America, share the sonogram yep. on Facebook. And then of course, there's been a trend in recent years. There's been a lot about it in the media because the person who really launched this, um, uh, ritual, the gender reveal party, yeah. uh, is now a really sharp critic of that, um, quite a vocal critic of it. But people do these really elaborate gender reveal parties, which are often shared on social media. And so all of those are things that occur before the child even arrives on the scene, you know, in the outside world. Um, and so, yeah, like that huge percentage of people, 
I shared it from the sonogram onwards. I was a first time parent. I only have the one child. Um, I was far from my family of origin. Um, and although I had a really great supportive community in London, really when I fell pregnant and when I was expecting her, I, the connections that really felt the most grounding and supportive and important were often the connections at home. And I think that social media at the time just really provided this efficient way to kind of getting a very palpable sense of that community. Like even when I was on there and I was aware of what the weather was in Louisville or, you know, or just what other people or my cousins with their kids Mm -hmm. were doing, I just, I could feel that community in a way that felt really important at the time. And then when my daughter was born, it was really tough for my parents. She was the first grandchild. My siblings hadn't had kids yet. They have them now, but they didn't have them then. So she was the first. And it was a huge deal for my parents. So I think it imagined they'd never have grandchildren at all. They were kind of tired of waiting. Um, and so I did this thing where I posted like any proud parent would do, you know, in the offline, you know, show, you know, used to show people pictures in your purse or your wallet or whatever. And like, now there's this, um, and then it advanced because when she started to talk, she was really hilarious and she was funny and she had this dark twisted sense of humor and I'm a writer and I do some like, you know, screenplays and stuff as well. So I did these dialogues that I would capture very faithfully, the Zoe dialogues and they, they kind of got a bit of a following and people really gave me a lot of reinforcement for posting them. The pictures that I posted of her because I'm a keen amateur photographer are the dialogues that I curated, although they were, they were real dialogues, but of course I picked the funny ones. I picked the ones that, you know, I could tell would get people's, you know, that would make, that would make them laugh or whatever it is, make them feel something. And so I kind of, commodified her really in a way thinking about it now, you know, the, you know, the beautiful images and the funny things. And I really kind of presented and, you know, kind of curated this, you know, kind of segment of her personality and displayed it. And the more people reinforced it, the more I did it. Um, and when she was around four or five, she started, and I can see them now when I go back through the dialogues, cause I pulled them all off Facebook and I printed them up in a book for her And when I flip through them now, I can see when she started to object, when she started to question, when she started to notice there was a lot of what are you writing? And there was a lot of just this increasing consciousness. And then there were points even when she said, don't take pictures of this. And she had the sign on her door once that said, no taking private property of Zoe, no taking pictures of this sign. I mean, you mummy. Oh, and of course I photographed it. (laughs) Oh God. And I posted it on social media and I got caught because she saw it on somebody else's computer and she accused me and she was six and she, and she said, you shared something that what I said was private And, you know, she said, and she said, it's my choice. It's my choice. She was six years old. She was saying this from the car seat. Wow. And I felt ashamed at the moment, that moment. And it did make an impression on me, but I think I was really entangled in it. There were a lot of psychological and emotional and social kind of functions that was fulfilling for me, which were a lot about that continued connection for sure but it had evolved into something else. I think I, I think it was as much about me and kind of stoking my own ego through having this really cool and funny child and being so skilled at presenting her. It was as much about that as it was anything else. And I'd be lying if I said it were otherwise that it was a hundred percent about sort of staying connected. It was that too, you know? Yeah. That is really interesting. Yeah. mm, Yeah. Go ahead. But finally, after I wrote this book and when I was thinking about the next one, soon after I sort of had published the book and that chapter was out there about my sort of sharing history and kind of connecting it to how I'd influenced her like, you know, ongoing online legacy without her. Like I'd basically performed a fait accompli. When people would meet her, they would sort of say, oh, oh, the famous Zoe, like, what are you listening to now? And if she gave the wrong answer, the answer they weren't expecting, like the cool, like, you know, pop icon, like David Bowie answer they were expecting, they're like, oh, but aren't you really a Bowie girl? When she'd say a Disney, you know, film or something, you know, yeah. song. 
And so she never met a stranger, but in a bad way. She never met a person who hadn't already made up their minds that they, they knew who she was. So she had like the celebrities experience of like people knowing you, but you not knowing them. Yes. And she would say, am I famous? Like, why Aww. do these people know me? Well, actually, she didn't say that. She said, why do these people think mm. they know me? Oh, interesting. And even that like mm-hmm. didn't make me stop. I, I was still had carried on for a couple of years. But the really end of it when I was when I sat down with her, we were having lunch in a pub as you do. And it's okay. It's it's not weird in, in, in the UK. <laughs> like we were in the bar with our child. With <laughs> um, and she was nine or sort of coming up to nine. And I asked her, I said, listen, I've been thinking about this a lot because um, there's stuff in the news, like kids really taking their parents to task for sharing them stuff about them on social media. And what do you think about it? And she said, I've always hated it. I always oh. felt like I was out of control. I didn't like, and she remembered incidents from years before and she brought wow. them up. She brought the photographing of the sign and getting caught. She, mm. she brought up things that I could not imagine how she remembered and I thought every time this happened to her, it was like a trust violation that she remembered. And I said, why didn't you say more about it at the time? She said, well, I didn't think you'd stop anyway. Oh, wow. And that kind of learned helplessness that she had, yeah. you know, and I have to emphasize this was not for public consumption. I wasn't doing like I wasn't if. I guess I was doing a kind of mummy blogging in a way, but no, we're not really. Cause I just had, because I'm a psychologist and because I have to be careful about my privacy settings, right. yep. it was confined to family and friends. And I thought that that made it okay. Mm. But I realized I'd taught her unwittingly and sort of to my horror lessons about not having control over her own self-presentation and her identity and her information. Like I acted like I didn't care. Like my needs were more important than hers, whatever those needs might've been. And I thought, God, how does that roll on into adulthood? Mm. Like how does that lesson that you don't have control and you don't have the right to have that boundary what is, that's not a a lesson you'd ever want a a teenage girl or an adult woman kind of conforming to. Sure. So then I I said, what do you want me to do? And she said, I want you to erase all of it. And I did. Wow. Okay. All down. (laughs) So this is really good. Okay. Cause I think a lot of people are probably their ears have perked up because I think one a lot of parents are not asking their kids permission to post this stuff. Like, I don't even think they're thinking, or the kids are so little, you, you, you wouldn't even be able to ask them permission. Um, and it is interesting that she thought that you wouldn't stop anyway. And so um, I do want the moms listening to this to really think about that. And, um, and I guess the thing is, is so if you could go back in time, now knowing what you know, what would you do? Um, and now what if your daughter was okay with it? So, so let's, we'll, we'll play two scenarios. Okay. So let's say, um, now that you know what you know, and your daughter wasn't cool with it, what would you do? And what if she was okay with it? What would you do? It's really interesting. Cause I asked her the question. I said, um, you know, would it have been better if I asked your permission? Uh, all the way along. And she said, and she (laughs) referenced a friend of hers. It was actually the younger sister of a friend of hers. Who's like really crazy and lets it all hang out. Like lets it all hang out. Like does really crazy thing. And she said, we'll call her, we'll call her, we'll call her Laura. It's not a real name, Yeah. but she said, well, imagine if you asked Laura, Hey, can I take a picture of your bum in the bath? And Laura would be like, sure. And like pull down her pants. (laughs) You know, she said, because, and then she said, because Laura is crazy. You know, and she said, and she's a kid. So if a kid doesn't understand, like, what's the point of asking the kid? Mm. And I thought that was an awesome point because actually a lot of adults also don't understand, you know, there's been a study that's done here uh, in the UK estimating that by the year 2030, on identity fraud because of parents sharing of information is going to be absolutely rife. So basically as soon as these kids graduate into spending their first dollars or pounds or whatever, 
because of the rapidly advancing facial recognition technology, which is a big deal, you cannot separate out sharing risks from facial recognition technology and artificial intelligence and deep faking and hacking scenarios. Because wow. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I'm 50 years old. When I was a kid, you know, you had to like, you know, somebody'd have to like, you'd have to say, oh, watch your post. You know, like if somebody steals your social security number from your post, you know, they can do whatever. Uh, or from your mail. Uh, now, imagine what people yeah. have got oh, yeah. above and beyond social security numbers. You know, they've got it yep. all. Yep. Most people have completely unique footprints and facial recognition technologies are really growing largely unfettered. Um, there was some pretty, de- just really devastating reporting um, done by Kashmir Hill and the New York Times about Clearview AI and use of facial recognition technology by police forces and everywhere else. And we've got to get a handle on this because right now, I mean, they, the schools have facial recognition technology. Some summer camps have facial recognition technology. It's out of hand. So if you kind of combine that with all of the really personal stuff that parents share, not only do we, I guess, make them people vulnerable to our little people vulnerable to future hacking or identity fraud, but we also deliver them into the lion's mouth with respect to advertising and like hyper precise marketing. Because if I'd kept on as I was, you know, advertisers, they would know what she liked, what she wore, what her favorite colors were, like all of this stuff. And, you know, and that really alarms me that I would, you know, that something that I had done could be responsible for her having to deal with that kind of stuff in yeah. the future. Um, right. but that's where we're kind of headed with surveillance capitalism, unless a whole lot of stuff changes. That's interesting. And we're providing the raw data. It's like, right. you know, that whole sort of thing about you are the product. Like when you're using a service for free, you know, like Facebook is for free or Twitter mm-hmm. is for free or right. Instagram is for free. It's not free you're the product. But if you're making decisions about other people's data, then you're making those people the products as well, including your children who like my own nine-year-old at the time daughter said, even if you did ask their permission, if we as adults haven't wrapped our head around all of these unintended consequences, how the heck can we expect our kids to? So it's actually in my view now, like not, it wouldn't have been on for me. It would, it would almost just be like getting me off scot-free. Like, here's this Mm. thing I want to do. Do I have your permission? Tick. Yes. But I mean, the whole idea of informed consent, like for medical procedures, a child can't give informed consent because they don't understand the risks. An adult has to do that for them. True. Like also Mm -hmm. kids don't understand the risks. So it's not meaningful informed consent. That is interesting. So even if she was saying it's fine, you're you would still reconsider everything. Um, if I had, if I knew, if I realized then what I realize yeah, now, now, then yeah. I never would <laughs> have posted an image of my daughter online. I would have only shared or information that was you know kind of personal, yep. identifiable information. I would have used all the other platforms that are available to share that some of which weren't really super developed at the time. Like when Facebook, when I started sharing stuff about her on Facebook, I didn't have WhatsApp. I didn't have WhatsApp until years later. So I couldn't have like a family group on WhatsApp, which is the main platform on which we share things. Now, of course, Facebook owns that. And (laughs) I don't know how much I trust it. Yeah. Um, out shared Apple, you know, iPhoto albums. We also do that, um, possibly marginally better. Um, but I still would want to share, I still would want to communicate, you know, how she was growing up both in her developing personality and pictures with my family. Um, but you know, the thing is none of us could have known, none of us could have known. Right. And- yeah. <laughs> It's kind of like 2008, 2009, 2010, like it it was all unfolding. Yeah. So for people who still want to share, okay, but maybe they're kind of like, whoa, okay, I don't want to be sharing now as much. Like, what is your thoughts on that? Like, do you feel like it doesn't really matter? It's either all or nothing. Or do you feel like, yeah, it will make a big difference if you really scale back? What's your thoughts on that? Well, I, what, after I stopped using social media in the same way, uh, because of what we're talking about Mm -hmm. here, um, 
what I started to really reflect on is every time I had the impulse to share, which at first was stronger, I thought, what is this sharing about? Like, what's driving this? Why do I want to share at this moment? What am I reaching out for? Am I reaching out for, um, do I feel lonely? Do I want validation? Do I like, am I proud? Um, am I feeling disconnected? Am I just doing it as out of habit? Am I being behaviorally nudged by this platform to do this? Is it just like, you know, so I started interrogating like, well, what is this for? Like, what is this particular sharing in service of? Like it could be fun or it could be whatever, you know, and I started realizing that uh, the vast majority of the time, I wasn't actually sure why I was doing it, um, which made me even more suspicious of just about just how behaviorally shaped I'd been as, you know, by the platforms. Um, so the first answer to your question is that I actually realized that when I really thought about it, I realized that a lot of my instances of sharing were about something that I actually didn't need or want to sign up to, or there was some other way that I could get that need met. And in those instances, I thought, okay, if I have this need for like connection, or if I have this need, you know, how else can I get that need met right now? Or if I'm just bored, how can I, you know, meet that need without sharing somebody else's data, basically, right. yeah, uh, or my own. Um, and so that was part of it. Uh, and then for those other instances, I just found other ways. I got more creative with my family. I kind of explained where I was at on it. I explained that I wasn't trying to kind of freeze them out or whatever, but like, you know, how could we, you know, kind of more meaningful meaningfully connect more often, you know, maybe more video calling or more regular video calling, maybe more kind of curating of, um, you know, the thousands of photographs down into the 10 or 15 that were really awesome and making wonderful photo books for holiday gifts and things like that. You know, I started being more deliberate about that stuff that I did share and maybe more caring and more curatorial and more just, you know, paying attention to what of all the stuff that could be shared felt special and meaningful. And it was much more kind of reduced distilled kind of sharing with my family and friends. And it was, that was something that I enjoyed a lot more too, because I was actually thinking about it. I wasn't just doing it automatically, you know? Yeah. Um, but the platforms definitely nudge us into doing those things automatically as much as possible. The best minds in the world are amassed in service of trying to get you to share as much data as possible. So I consider this <laughs> kind of mindfulness about it a yeah. really important um, act of re re revolt, uh, I, of re you know. Yeah. yeah, it is interesting. And I do think um, I don't post that much about, well, myself in general. Um, I post a lot of things about the podcast. I post a lot of things about travel. So like, you know, trips and, and resorts to stay at and stuff like that. But I limit it. But that's mainly because I think overall, I am more private to begin with. Um, so hearing this, I'm like, Oh, I'm like, I don't know if I'm ever going to be posting anything of the kids now. But I, I'm always a little bit leery. And I will say that I did post more when they were younger. You know, I feel like it's so easy to post when they're like babies, you know, because I feel like they change so often. And I noticed as they got older, I kind of like, went away from that. Um, you know, when Facebook reminds you of old memories, I'm like, there's definitely a lot more when they were little. Um, and, um, so I do think it's really eye opening to just kind of think about this a little bit more and, um, and to think about, I liked what you said, and I've thought about this too. Um, because there are some people that post so much stuff. Like, I mean, you almost feel like, you know, their whole life and you might not even talk to them and you're, because you've seen so much of their, their day-to-day -day activities and what their kids are doing, what they're eating, what they're doing. Uh, and, and I'm not even trying to take that right. And use that data against them. So I can only imagine what other people and what, you know, like, you know, the people that are trying to take all of that and kind of use it against us later. Um, I can't even imagine. So, um, oh, it's, I, a goal, it's a gold mine for them. And then, oh, yeah. and of course the platinum, and of course the platinum mine is things, um, kind of internet of things, um, ambiently listening devices, you know, like, you know, uh, the kind of, you know, dot echo things yep. and stuff people have in their homes yep. that, you know, that, that, cause that's the final frontier, you know, yes. <laughs> the kind of, you know, where it's listening and collecting data all the time, but that's the data that we don't mean to be giving up. You know, this is data that we actually do regain some measure of control over. Right. And I think it's really important to emphasize that, Hey, you know, like there are really good reasons why people do what they have made choices that they've made, you know, and it's not just our internal, you know, the need to 
share and feel be part of a community and to be part of communities with families and to connect socially with other human beings is just one of the most fundamentally human things there is. And so there's nothing wrong with these impulses. This is the first time we've been in the kind of climate where real kind of exploitation or sort of, you know, things can happen with our data, but also where this whole thing about sharing other people's information, you know, that power, I guess, you know, has yeah. been in all of our hands, you know, and this is such a new situation. And I think a lot of us have just kind of stumbled into it and are stumbling through it. And we can be forgiven for not thinking about these things. Right. So the last thing I want to do is come over all sort of like judgy or like wagging my finger about, right. you know, yeah. kind of people who, <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, but I think like you say, I asked my daughter, you know, this was a serious conversation. This wasn't just like an off the cuff kind of thing. I said, I really want to understand how you feel about this. And then when she told me, and when she told me what she wanted me to do, I knew that I had no other choice but to stop, which I did. But I found it really, really hard, really hard because over the years I had been, as we all are being manipulated, Hmm. you know, by the platforms, by the technologies into doing this as much as possible. Like you say, a lot of those people who are sharing a lot and being really automatic about it. Mm -hmm. I saw a woman on the tube not too long ago before lockdown. Well, it was actually a really long time ago. What am I talking about (laughs) before lockdown this March? And she was on Instagram and she, even when she looked up from her phone, her thumb kept scrolling, 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 like her thumb. It was like a twitch, you know, like she just kept scrolling. And then she'd look down and she'd keep scrolling. Wait, she was taking, she was like an Insta story. She was scrolling through her Instagram feed. And even when she looked away from it, her thumb kept going. It was just like a scrolling reflex. (laughs) It's like a reflex. That's, that's, that's an extreme example. Yeah. You know, yeah. but it used to be, but I used to be one of those people that mm. basically, as soon as anything cool happened, as soon as I took a wonderful picture, as soon yeah. as whatever happened, mm-hmm. I posted it. Yeah. And I'm thinking now when I look back at it, I'm kind of really curious about it. I'm thinking, what all was I fulfilling in terms of needs of myself, but also how much was I manipulated yes. to kind of like, how much was that need fed um, yeah. uh, or shaped by my digital um, environment? But I mean... Also, genealogy. I mean, genealogy is one of the most important hobbies in the United States. Americans love genealogy. Um, and I was, I've was i always been really interested in family history. Yeah. But that's another way, especially yeah. when you triangulate it with, you know, spitting into a tube and sending off our DNA. We're making really powerful decisions about other people's privacy as well, because anonymous sperm donors have been identified. The amazing book by oh. memoir by Danny Shapiro about how she, you know, found her biological dad who was a medical student at oh. the facility where her parents received fertility treatment. She learned that she was only half Jewish. She thought she was as Jewish as like, you know, oh, <laughs> to, wow. you know like and she came from this really important Jewish family and all this line of rabbis oh. and all this stuff. And she found out that her dad wasn't her dad, that it was this medical student. And, you know, and she found him, she tracked him down and he wasn't asking or looking to be found. I don't know what's happened since, but I mean, and, but it's just, you know, there's so much, every time you're plugging information in, even though the people who are currently living are kind of grayed out or they don't have, it's anonymous, a lot of it on, on like ancestry, for example, like there's so many ways in which you can find skeletons in the closet and then track it to people. And we're just curious about our family history, right? But I mean, submitting our DNA, our DNA is not just our DNA. We share it with so many other people. Our online information is not just our inline information. Because of the connected nature of the web, it involves so many other people. It's a network. It's of nodes. And we're one of those nodes. And how often is it really that when we post something online, we are referring exclusively to ourselves. We are posting a picture exclusively of ourselves, like probably the minority of the time. Yeah, that is true. And we don't always realize how powerful those decisions are. Yeah. And I was going to say, so, I mean, from your standpoint, would you not be doing stuff like Ancestry.com and 23andMe? Like, what's your thoughts now on that? I did it and I don't think I can unring that bell. Um, but <laughs> I, 
I, man, seriously, Amber, I enjoyed the heck out of it when I did it. I found it so interesting. It really appealed to yeah, the detective. Yeah, I, I could understand that, especially being but American, mo- right? Like, it's yeah. like you're a mix yeah. of so many no, things. I know. It, it, all these documents, it was so intoxicating. It was really interesting mm-hmm. and I got really wrapped up in it. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think you know, had, had something happened to me, like what happened to Danny Shapiro that she wrote about in her book where she made that discovery. Mm. I mean, you just kind of, you're kind of taking a roll of the dice and Mm. then like in terms of what you find out. And then sometimes once people find something out, they can't resist pursuing something and, 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 you know, that, getting in contact with that person who Mm. might hearing from you might be a surprise. And, you know, I get that you get surprises in life or whatever it is, but I mean, anonymous sperm donors who (laughs) made their donation on condition of anonymity, for example, and to have that blown out of the water five, 10, 15, 20 years later, for example, you know, um, you know, it just, the, the, it's a hard, you notice that I'm hesitating with this in yeah. a way, like it was clearly an easier decision for me to stop posting about my daughter than it is <laughs> to swear off ancestry.com for life. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Um, I mean, here's but, the thing. I mean, I guess what if you're not like thinking you're going to go track down people? Do you still think that it, it, it causes a problem or do you think it's more the like, I think it's you, more when people act on what they find out. Yes. There was a case a couple of years ago where a woman had gotten, um, uh, she conceived her daughter through a sperm, you know, through a cryogenics, you know, like a, a sperm, um, a sperm um, kind of donor. And she then apparently with parents permission, you can get your kid. I don't think this was ancestry. I think it was 23 and me. The kid, minor child can submit a sample. So she submitted a sample for her daughter and got her daughter's DNA profile and then located some, you know, relative of the biological fathers and got in contact with that person. And then the facility got in touch with her with a cease and desist and (gasps) said, you now cannot have access to any more of this um, sperm for any future children that you might want to have. And she'd wanted to give her daughter siblings, but (gasps) then the facility withdrew permission because she'd violated the terms and conditions. And of course, classic, classic, and this goes for most of us. She said, well, I never read the terms and conditions. (laughs) (laughs) And the thing is, is that when you do read the terms and conditions, whether it's on the social media where you're sharing pictures of your kids or whether it's on ancestry, you know, you know, kind of websites or whatever, you read the T's and C's and you realize just how much control of your information you're giving away, just what, you know, all these kinds of consequences of sharing that data. There's a reason why it's all in super fine print, because if we really understood I think that a lot of us would be a much more reluctant to share what we share and that's not what they want. Yeah, that is really interesting. I don't think people would think about that. Um, again, it's kind of like what you're saying. It's just like, it can be so fascinating to, um, learn all the different, um, you know, ethnicities and all that stuff that like make someone up and they may not even realize, you know, that they might have a little bit of Russian or whatever, you know? And so that part makes it really fascinating. It it is interesting that people then act on it, kind of like what you're saying. And I guess it kind of could expose secrets too, that, you know, people were trying to keep a secret kind of like, um, you know, yeah. having donors and, and maybe you didn't know yeah. that your parents had a hard time getting pregnant and they didn't like share that with you and stuff like that. So, yeah. um, yeah, that is really exactly. fascinating. And with Danny Shapiro, it actually in their community, um, in this other, you know, the kind of, um, Orthodox Jewish community in New York where she grew up, it was really frowned upon to go and like, uh, you know, it said that, you know, so, so it, it wasn't something that they could socially talk about. They felt, you know, and much less share with her. You know, and so that was something that was her parents were had passed away by the time she made this discovery. But, you know, it was pretty seismic for her wow. in terms of her identity. Yeah, and right. so, you know, but, you know, the other thing that bears mentioning is that, you know, you're basically handing over your biometric privacy to, you know, these companies who also um, have it been known to sort of share certain aspects of your data with third party organizations, kind of like Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. And it's like your, but your DNA is pretty much the most incredibly personal thing that you have. 
And when you combine your DNA information and then all the facial recognition sort of stuff that there is out there about you, it's kind of like bad things societally and individually Mm. may not be happening um, in all countries right now in 2020 with the use of this data, these data, but we can't necessarily predict what the consequences of that mega sharing might eventually be. So it might yet be unfolding or may yet come to pass what the full consequences this might, you know, and then it's, as I say, it's kind of hard to unring those bells. Yeah. So certain governments, certain countries, certain sort of points in time, the fact that we have shared all this information might be a whole lot more consequential than it is now. And I don't really want to roll those dice Mm -hmm. on the part of my daughter uh, in particular um, if there is no really compelling reason for that data to be shared. If it's an option, then I'm opting not. Yeah, that is really Um, interesting. There's all sorts of things in our, you know, kind of environment, Mm -hmm. like, you know, facial recognition technology at the front of stores or on scanners at the grocery or whatever it is, all in the name of convenience, of course. Right. Um, (laughs) You know, but the things that we can control, I am opting to control because it's kind of one of the ways that I feel a bit more balanced in a world that increasingly is kind of chipping away at that. Right control that we have over our privacy and our identity. So I'm starting to value that a little bit more highly and feeling like hanging on to what I've got. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I agree. And I feel like a lot of people's minds are probably blown right now. Um, I, Elaine, we are at the end of the show, but I wanted to ask you one more question. So if people are wanting to start um, to remove pictures and stuff like that from social media, but it, you know, it just feels very overwhelming, especially if they've been doing it for many, many years and a lot of it, you know, um, what would you say is a good starting point? Like, how did you start to begin to unravel what you had done? So what is some, what is some suggestions that you have that, um, could help, um, just I was, tackle I was this? really, um, I was really, uh, overwhelmed because there was a lot of stuff. Um, and it was mostly on Facebook and Instagram, but there was a lot and it doesn't, they don't make it easy uh, to do that. Interestingly. (laughs) Uh, and I ended up, um, using an app, um, that I asked my colleagues in the kind of privacy community about a way of doing this more efficiently. And they recommended an app for me. I don't know whether to say it or not, because I'm, it's not, I'm like affiliated with them or anything, but I, I, I don't know if it's okay to say, but yeah, I used sure an app called Jumbo, okay. uh, a Jumbo that um, kind of basically wiped everything. But oh, wow. I took this decision because it was just too hard to selectively edit stuff out. I ended up deleting all of it. I, I, oh. I basically wiped all of it, which, but before I did it, I had it all printed up into books because I, on paper, like books and what, you know what, Amber, seriously, the first couple of years that I used Facebook, there was this little tiny book, kind of like about the size of maybe like not even as big as, as big as the Vogue magazine, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> like a people magazine. Yeah. And then as the years went by yeah, and I got more and more sucked in like I couldn't do two years at a time anymore. I had to do one year because it was like the oh, freaking so dictionary. <gasps> yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so I ended up printing and I lost a lot of the funny comments from friends or I list, you know, I lost some of the information, but I decided that she was worth it and it was worth it to make good on the promise that I'd made her. Um, and so I followed through, but I mm. did record I, and all the dialogues I'd pulled off before. I mean, so how what long I would did say that take? Is, I mean, to go back. Um, once I found that. the app, um, oh, uh-huh. I, it wasn't, it was easy. Oh, okay. So does it pull app. it all off and then gives it to you? It doesn't just like delete it all out and then you don't have it. It, it, it extracts well, it for I you to have. Jumbo archives it. It takes it, archives it. Oh. But I then printed off in the books and I sort of wiped the archive Got because it. I just thought, okay, I just have it in the books. Because, sure. you know, the fact that I had them printed out on books for which I used another service, um, you know, no, what's the service that you used? I can't remember. Oh, okay. it, it, might, it might have been just like face. It might have been called. Um, do you know what? I can't remember. If you I feel remember, like just send it to me and I'll put it. it in the show notes. If you remember. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kind of had to read the T's and C's pretty carefully of that one, too, of course. Um, but I 
I thought, you know, if these kinds of things are nice to kind of pass down, because I really enjoy reading through my few bits and bobs in my baby book to see what I was like as a kid. And my daughter's going to have a whole heck of a lot more than that. But I thought, you know, she's going to be able to look at these books more readily than she is going to be able to access anything on a social media platform that I post on today. We always kind of think online is forever. It's only forever if you can access it. And there's all sorts of ways in which people might not be able to access it. Mm -hmm. So I'm all about kind of, as I say, being more curatorial now and putting stuff into physical format, because then that's something I can look at in my older age, no matter what technology is happening at the moment that my daughter can have, you know, unpass on, um, there's more of a chance that future generations are going to see that for anybody interested in family history, but I don't see how my great, great, great grandchildren are going to access my Facebook data. That's true. You know, especially, yeah. especially now Yeah, <laughs> I've, I've wiped it, but, yeah. um, yeah, seriously. Um, you might need to find some help through various apps that are designed to help you clear mm-hmm. out your social media because apps like Jumbo recognize that, um, Facebook and Instagram and such don't make it easy. Yeah, that is really great. Um, yeah. And I'll put that in the show notes. And if you remember um, the book where you made that, um, I would love to put that yep. um, in there as well. But Elaine, thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, you have really <laughs> opened my eyes and made me think twice about doing things. And like I said, I I, I don't go overboard, but still, you know, there's stuff out there and um, I still post things here and there. And that kind of makes me think, you know, maybe I, I don't really want to do that at all going forward. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing all of this with us. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so happy to do it. Just like before you do something, you know, post something, mm-hmm. just have a little check in with yourself and think, gosh, you know, like, what am I really needing right now? And like, what is this in service of, you know, what is this for? And is this, you know, important, you know, enough, you know, you know, to, you know, to, to do, is there some other way that I can get whatever this need is met? Um, and that's something that really helped me when I was kind of detoxing from the whole thing. Um, uh, and I started, returning to some more of more oral storytelling and kind of like passing down kind of stuff in that kind of way, which is a time honored tradition that we would all do a lot more of if we aren't so busy posting. Yeah, I love it. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you, Amber. Hey, you guys, have you subscribed to the Mom Inspired Show email list yet? If you want to have discounts sent to your email, and links to the books we discuss on the show, as well as all the guests' information, then you will want to subscribe. That way, every episode will show up in your inbox every Tuesday, and you won't have to go searching for the newest episode. It will be right at your fingertips. So just go to mominspiredshow.com and scroll down and enter your name and email, and you will be all set. See you next week.